just a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Beats all you never saw, been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. Good old boys. I'm Mark. Bog beef. And, you know, it's the doomer from Sweden who has been totally proven wrong because everything is just normal right now, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, people, people, a lot of people sound like things are here lately. I know there were people that w- wouldn't associate uh, either with you or even with us. They'd be like, oh, you, you guys are, are, are hosting a, a doomer. And this is some kind of uh, a scam, um, you know, done by, uh, you know, who knows, who knows uh, Peter Thiel or, Big anime. or George Soros or something is, is has planned this out and it's going to make people scared for the future and start thinking about um, things like uh, uh, fertilizer and shit. Uh, no, no. Uh, uh, apparently, uh, you know, you counted uh, Alex Jones wrong another time. I don't know if people have been there doing his website, seen his web store. We need to get a web store going. Uh, on his web store, you know, he sells like shit that you would have in your bunker. I mean, yeah, you know, people have been talking about, like, Tinksorg is just talking about collapse and it's never going to happen and so on. And there's been sort of a a couple of of problems with that. The first one is that, you know, it's happened. Like, this is how it looks like. People tend to think that, you know, the collapse of the Roman Empire or whatever is everyone dies. It's just like in a movie or whatever. Uh, you know, meteor hits or for whatever. But, you know, the Roman Empire collapsed and people went on living. Like, life be- became really shitty, like chronically shitty in some places and acutely, uh, life-threateningly shitty in others. But, you know, like, there were still people in Europe, there were still people in Italy and so on. And so, like, collapse is just, uh, like, collapse is fairly ordinary. It's just, you know, your life goes on as before except everything gets re- like worse sometimes it get it gets worse really quickly and sometimes it's a bit slower but in this case um, like this war in U- in the Ukraine um, it is really really meaningful and I don't think there's anyone who denies it but but the West is currently in denial about just how like ridiculously huge the um second order effects of trying to isolate russia will be yeah it, it, and one of the things that i think people might uh uh if they were if they were going to try to uh, refute this uh stuff you were saying and by the way like i asked you this uh you know one of the first times we talked i was i uh i was like well you know how does this work like how like uh uh you know give me a map for how this works and you were like well uh, it doesn't work like that. It's it's primarily dictated by events. You yeah. said you quoted a, a politician that says events because I, I don't know. What people say is well, yeah, well the stuff he said is true, but it's only because um this crazy thing happened in Ukraine. Yeah, I well, mean, crazy things happening. You know, this is kind of like if you've seen Jurassic Park, that they, they kind of do happen. Yeah, and if you if you think about like the lead up to World War One, which I think that this war in in some ways, like the war in Ukraine is basically like the, the crisis on the Balkans uh, yeah. in relationship to World War I. I don't think we will see something like, you know, mass mobilization or whatever. I think we're, what we're going to see is like... Only because of nuclear weapons. Yeah, exactly. Uh, th- th- this war, I said this to Bogbeef yesterday, this war 
would have been a great war if not for nuclear weapons. Yeah. We would already be in, you know, we would already be in the guns of August situation right now if if not for nuclear weapons. We we want the the West one hundred percent would be at war with Russia. Yeah, and I think that in this in this scenario, like China would probably join in as well, given like how different the world would be in terms of alliance structures and so on. And you know, this mm, time imagine. the U.S. would probably be playing the the role of Austro. Austria-Hungary, for the simple reason that, like, in World War I, the actual sort of uh, lead-up to the crisis had to do with, like, Austria-Hungary basically slowly collapsing under its own internal contradictions, and trying to sort of prevent that collapse by really gambling. Um, and, and people tend to think that, like, you know, the, the, the war was revenge for... Like the shooting by that autistic Serb of the the uh, <laughs> the black hand, yeah, yeah, the the Austrian crown prince. But like in reality, that guy he was not very popular. Like his grandfather or granduncle or whatever it was, I can't remember like how he was related to the emperor. But but basically, that guy had found a wife that wasn't you know approved of by um, his own family. And he just said, fuck it, I love this woman, I'm going to marry her. And, and, you know, like, he was com- constantly sort of snubbed by his own family. And, like, when, um, when the emperor heard of, like, okay, so, you know, Franz Ferdinand has been killed, he basically said something like, well, you know, this is God's punishment for him. <laughs> so, so, like, the person himself was not necessarily, like, a deal breaker but what was a deal breaker was serbian independence serbian nationalism because the austrian hungarian empire was a multi-ethnic empire and if the serbs got basically got a win like the kingdom of serbia could sort of tell uh, the austrians to fuck off like what would the croats start doing what would the italians start doing Serbia has oil too, by the way. I got I got I got to make a, a disagreement with you here. Now, while the uh, the Austria Hungary comparisons to the U.S. like I've said it in the past, I like that comparison because of the you know the the institutional rot we have. I don't think that would have been would have been our role in the war. Our role would have been the role of of Britain in both in both world wars. Uh, this uh, global empire. That is going to throw everything away for, uh, in their case, it was two stupid wars. But in ours, apparently, it's just going to take one stupid war for us to throw away our entire empire. Yeah. And like, and, you know, Britain didn't get invaded. Uh, Britain, Britain still, Britain's still there. It didn't get dismantled like Austria Hungary. We're, we're still going to be here at the end of this. We're n- nobody, nobody's going to red dawn invade us, but we have possibly put a torch to our global trade empire. Over the fucking Ukraine. Yeah, like this this country does not matter. I'm sorry, but it doesn't matter. Like it's the poorest country in Europe and it's incredibly corrupt and it's a bunch of sort of super, um, you know, like sleazy oligarchs uh, who, who don't have some sort of tyrant lording over them, telling them to, to, you know, stop stealing the silverware. And so, you know, you have... Like, these people for the U.S., they're just pay pigs for Hunter Biden and a bunch of NGOs. Like, 
you know, nothing of value would be lost. In the same way that maybe, like, if, you know, the kingdom of Serbia got to tell the Austrians to fuck off. Like, most people in Europe, like, they wouldn't be terribly bothered in the long term. So, so yeah, I, I agree with your comparison here. Um, I think the comparison to Austria-Hungary is just that. Austria-Hungary has all of these internal contradictions and all of these, this institutional rot. The empire is barely holding together. So even something that's fairly small is a life or death question for them. And I think that sort of applies to the U.S. as well. Like, the U.S. sort of um, doesn't really care about Ukraine. Like, it's not some sort of um, national, uh, you know, priority or whatever. But, but once you tell the Serbs that they can just, you know, tell you to go screw yourself your contradictions will start reaching the boiling point. One thing about this, so, you know, you don't, like, uh, there were, one of the best threads that's going around uh, uh, Twitter right now is uh, there's an assistant professor at some university that uh, does a write-up of why Putin won't be out of power. And she, and it's, uh, she doesn't say it, it, she's clearly using selectric theory, which is based that we call patronage theory. Yeah, uh, she says winning coalition, all that stuff, and people were just like, um, they were, they people were like, wow, this is really clear headed analysis. I'm, I've never heard anything like this. I, I, I was very <laughs> jealous because I was like, oh gosh, but I couldn't have done it because I don't, I don't know um, uh, Russia that much. But and and, and that's what and where I'm getting at is I don't really know what Ukraine's like, but I do have some little things like um, uh, I just heard. Um, so I, I talk to people from my home town all the time i'll be moving back there very shortly um and the you know it, it's 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 a small town there's 150,000 people in the town so it's it's not a town it's not a city uh but there's one uh guy it's like the biggest crook in town right uh and it's a small town crook so it's like boss hog like if you signed up to the uh uh premium patreon that's the you know the fat cat that's that's on the picture uh, and he's a guy that like, um, you know, he just like, he's doing crooked shit all the time. Like, uh, uh, he got caught like, uh, uh, taking gold, uh, uh Krugerans out of South Africa back when that was the story. <laughs> He would like anytime there's like some kind of international story, like he's got like some weird crooked shit and he like owns bars and shit like that. He's li literally like a villain out of, I mean, he's literally is boss hawk. And, uh, what everyone's talking about today is that, uh, he just showed up. He, so he had a, he had this, uh, uh, on the bar and that bar has been closed down for like the past 10 years, which was is weird that they, they made a lot of money. Well, where's he been? He's been in the fucking Ukraine. And uh, he just got back yesterday. Like all of a sudden, like uh, uh, it, it, you, you got to think, like the, you know, you hear about all these different. They, uh, the United States has all these was doing all this weird medical research there. Soros has all this money there. Uh, people like Biden's playing there. I mean, Biden's son's playing there. Uh, you know, in 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 uh, Bronze Age perverts books, he talked about how like uh, respectable society like always needs some these kind of like. Um, they need skid rows. Yeah, they, I agree. they they need like it needs these undergrounds like uh uh like uh I don't know people know like like he said in the book like you know the the gay club scene like you could buy any drug you want no problem and 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 you need that like to go with like the uh you know the happy go lucky corporate San Francisco and 
it, you just get the impression that like there was all kinds of bullshit going down there. This was just a, a casino for our kleptocrat. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Ukraine, and this is why, and we'll return to this later, I guess, but like when people say there's going to be this massive insurgency and so on, like everyone's pumped up on Ukrainian nationalism and, you know, okay, this nation hasn't really existed in its current form for, for longer than, you know, the 90s. But everyone really loves it now. Everyone's ready to die for Zelensky. Like, I just think they're smoking crack. Because if we just sort of apply this materialist-ish patronage theory, like, Ukraine is a field for slash-and-burn agriculture, in a way. Like, you come there, you loot the country, you basically sort of, you know, privatize something, you burn something down, um, you, you, you transfer resources from the people to your own sort of Swiss banking account. And, you know, because there's no sort of guardrails, because there's nobody who really cares about the national interest, like you don't really have to worry about replanting or paying the costs for any of that. And, you know, we've sort of... We've sort of, uh, how, how to put it, like we've adapted like that method to our own pressing needs with like, you know, all the fail sons inside the beltway, everyone like in NGO world, um, they, they get a share of the pie. Like that's, that's sort of the, um, the deal, like the, the social contract in Ukraine that we back up like our people in this free-for-all between different oligarchs and they um, maintain a sort of patronage scheme for you know fail some fail sons and fail daughters including people from sweden i was actually looking at sort of a chatham house i think panel about sending and i'm not making this ship shit up i wish i was but i'm not sending greta thunberg to kiev to uh teach the Ukrainians <laughs> about, you know, sustainable transitions to, you know, a queer, friendly, green economy or whatever. And it's like, this is just, this is just like the thinnest veneer on top of corruption. It, in the same way that, oh, well, you know, we really appreciate, you know, Hunter Biden, he's so good at smoking crack. We need an expert crack smoker on our sort of natural gas company owned by the state. Here's a million dollars a year. Like this is this is just this is just looting. And uh, oligarchs in Ukraine, they have the there's no one to stop them. Unlike in, you know, Russia where uh, you have a tyrant in in the non-judgmental sense. Um, a tyrant in the original Greek meaning, which is, you know, a guy or a small group of guys, they've concentrated power in their own hands, and they have no formal method of uh, succession. Yeah, which, by the way, uh, if anyone, if you're an American and you have sort of American values, uh, if that sounds bad, uh, have you ever seen any Western movie, like, ever? Or, like, uh, any episode of Bonanza or Gunsmoke? Uh, the plot is this. Uh, the plot is there's a town and it's full of, of basically oligarchs, uh, but just in a, a Wild West town version. And a sheriff shows up and he consolidates power. And he says, uh, I'm going to be 
the the head gun here. You're not gonna you're not gonna just steal like crazy and stuff. Things will have to go through me. It's one person, and then and that that I'll be responsible to the people. Well, what? Well, uh, that's exactly what fucking Putin did. I mean, it, it took him a long time, but he, uh, he, he brought all these, these oligarchs to heal eventually, uh, and the, the, la uh, uh, you know, the guy's living in, in Switzerland, I think now, um, the biggest one they've been, if you notice, they've been putting a lot of pressure on these expat. Well, I don't know if they're necessarily expats, but like they're, they're Russian oligarchs and, former oligarchs who spend a lot of time outside of Russia. It seems like they've targeted a lot of these sanctions. And, I mean, at this point, they're taking their yachts and, and their Tuscan villas. It seems like they're really putting a lot of pressure on these guys. Uh, going back to what Ted, was it, was it Ted Cruz the other day publicly said that they're looking for Brutus somewhere out there. Yeah. That seems like the, you're, you're, you're right now, right now they're putting the screws to the optimates and sorry, explain people might not know, explain, explain the, um, uh, the back background on the, uh, uh, the sanctions. Like a lot of these sanctions weren't just kicking Russia off swift. They were targeted at a certain individual, Russian individuals. And a some, a lot of them are guys who spend a lot of time in the West. And like that, it seems to me like you're, trying to encourage a palace coup by doing that yeah but the thing you have to sort of say immediately to that is that like this is part of the complete and utter delusional meltdown of the west like we are no longer serious people if we think that's how it works because again like i even see people saying that oh well you know we illegally confiscated this you know 800 billion yacht and we're going to, you know, sell it and, you know, buy new guns or whatever or give it to German taxpayers. The Russian people is going to be so mad. Like, imagine how angry the average American would be if you took, you know, the private jet of the Sackler family. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's That was kind of my point. I'm not sure those sanctions are intended to... Like, some of the sanctions clearly are intended to just hurt everyday Russians. Like, suspending, like, disconnecting them from financial services, Visa, all these companies saying they're not going to work in Russia anymore. That's targeting regular people. But these sanctions against these individuals... I don't think that's meant for the 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 average Ivan oh, yeah. or whatever. It's meant for these people, and like I would not discount the possibility that uh, it could accomplish some of what they want. Yeah. I don't I don't know enough about Russian internal politics, like. But the the thing is, if it all depends on how integral to his coalition these oligarchs are, she seems pretty certain that they're not. Like they're not part of his essentials anymore. That he has yeah. he has built his own gr groundwork of, of she called them strong men, which is a very vague term. Like if that's true, then yeah, it won't work. But uh, you know that this is, has worked in the past. C convincing yeah. the elites in the country to turn against them because you put the screws on them, you steal their goodies, you make living life as 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 a person who can who can enjoy all the fruits of western prosperity that has worked in the past it's yeah. failed it's failed too in the past uh, yeah. uh it yeah. made, me, made me think of the uh of the treaty of versailles yeah it's it's probably i i can it's almost certainly going to fail in this case for the simple reason that you know i think so the, too. the, the struggle against the oligarchs and their sort of um the, the neutralization of their political power 
was like the big struggle in Russia. Like that was the political battle uh, since the 90s. And <laughs> the way it was carried out was, you know, Putin basically, you know, promoting new men like a Napoleon. Like Napoleon's core consisted of people who would never ever have amounted to much in French society were it not for all of Napoleon's reforms. So you have people, you know, in the Russian mafia or whatever, being given like the ability to go legit and get much richer than they would, you know, doing crime by <laughs> fucking over oligarchs. Like that's a really good deal. Like that's a great deal if you can sort of become a legitimate sort of pillar of society and you get to fuck over really rich people and steal their stuff. It, it really, it, it almost, I shouldn't say it shocks me because it doesn't, but you, the people, like especially the people on social media and some, and even some news pundits, like they're really reveling in the sanctions against like Russia proper that are really only going to hurt the average person. Like, oh, this is going to make them rise up against Putin. Like when you're talking about those people, not only is that not going to work, it's going to make them, it's going to make them if not like Putin more, just hate us. Yeah. I mean, we, we bombed, we, we destroyed, we leveled cities in, in World War Two, and it didn't do a damn thing to convince our enemies to, to surrender. The Germans fought to the, to the, to the very last inch of German soil. Yeah. Well, I, I can, so here's, here's the thing that, that that's different with the way that it is in war. Uh, by the way, like in terms of, of uh, you know, will the sanctions work? I think a good comparison would be like, uh, well, imagine you, you sanctioned er Erdogan in 2014 versus you sanctioned him uh, in 2018. Uh, in 2014, it might work. In 2018, it won't work. He's he's already he's he's got he's uh, he's done his purges. Uh, but going back to what you're saying, okay, so there's an obvious difference in tone, and this is like this. Um, uh, we get this a lot, and it really pisses me off. I did a t big tweet about this, uh, but I deleted it because I don't want to get into it on Twitter. But um, there's a lot of people. So there's a tone that you take in terms with war, like a bloody war. I mean, like a, a bloody war like we had, like uh, a war against the Huns or war against the Jap and all this kind of stuff. Uh, there's a certain tone with that tour and there's a different tone you have where you have basically uh diaspora groups that come to the united states uh, or i mean and by the way like this is clearly like a good strategy so if you're losing some kind of tribal war somewhere else in the world well you could just go take a bunch of people and send them to america and have them um just sort of become activists uh here for war over there because uh, they'll certainly be more involved in this issue than like any native uh, uh person here you know what i mean yeah, you know, it'd be like if Tink Zorg <laughs> moved to America and all of a sudden, like he just spent all his life, like uh, 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 over here, like uh, you know, donating to politicians, tell them what, tell them to destroy the Danes, you know, yeah, uh, <laughs> bomb America needs to do something about the Danish, and and there's all these fucking people doing this, and you, there's a tone in their voice where it's like, uh, well, you know, there's uh, there's some kind of like geopolitical problem. And then there's a tone of voice where you guys are trying to settle some fucking blood feud, yeah. Uh, that I don't give a shit about. Yeah, yeah. Like what is what that vent like the, that general uh, former military guy Venman and his wife are just like going hog wild with the the anti-Russian rhetoric. Are 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 they Ukraine? Like, like is their family Ukrainian or something? 
Yeah, it, like, like, look, we could, like, uh, I'm not saying that it's wrong to, to, to feel that way about these people because, look, like, I'm like, you know, we have so many these people. If you're in Cuba and Castro took everything you have, and I say, well, you know, shut the fuck up, you're like, well, I've been seriously wrong. It's like, well, yeah, maybe you have, but like, uh, we have this different state here, and like, that is total bullshit to like just, uh, uh, force this upon us. And that's where you get this, like, crazy destructive stuff. It's like, no, just make them bleed. I don't care about the consequences it's like well fuck you like i do yeah and 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 the thing is like at this point i i, I used this sort of analogy beforehand and this ties into what you were just saying with all of these like uh you know bloodthirsty lunatics asking for us to like engage in nuclear war or whatever in order to like reclaim their country estates like you know the the western elite right now is basically like they're flying a plane, you know, in the middle of the night over the Atlantic. And when you do that, like, there's no cities, there's no ambient lightning, uh, lightning. Everything is pitch black. Like, there's no horizon. You can't see the difference between the sky and, you know, the ocean. And they've voluntarily sort of turned off all of the alarm systems, you know, the, the instruments telling you, like, where the plane is, how fast it's going, how high up in the sky it is and so they're just flying blind they could not tell like like the plane would literally be crashing into the ocean before they could tell that anything was wrong and you know this has sort of happened in some aircraft accidents where like people figure out holy shit like something bad is about to happen when they start hearing the sound of um tree branches hitting the underside of the plane and you know when once you start hearing that in the middle of late. South Africa, yeah, like there's 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 nothing you can do. Like you're you're not gonna pull that plane up and adjust. Like no, and and you see this. Let's take let's take the big elephant in the room here. So, uh, Russia is now supposed to be punished for you know um, invading the uh, Hunter Biden pay pig state by uh, shutting Russia off from the global economy completely. And now people are starting to realize, you know, after they've done the things necessary to attempt to do that, that, well, okay, all of these warning lights are starting to to show up. So the first one is, you know, the entire world is not against Russia. Uh, it's, It's Europe, it's North America, it's maybe one country in South America, uh, no countries in the Middle East, including, you know, the greatest ally ever of the United States, which is Israel. Like, they're not going to go along with it. Uh, Fran- France was bitching. Yeah. And so, like, in Europe, sure, there's a lot of solidarity about these sanctions. And then you, you realize that, like, everyone is trying to carve out holes for themselves. Um, but, like, in the rest of the world, people are just saying, sorry, no, this is not our fight. We're not going to do it. So, like, China isn't going to sanction them. Brazil isn't going to sanction them. Mexico is not. Like, most of Africa is definitely not going to san- sanction them. No country in the Middle East is going to sanction Russia. And, you know, outside of Japan, there's not going to be a lot of Asian countries sanctioning them either. And then you kind of realize that, you know, uh, in terms of oil production, Russia is neck and neck with Saudi Arab- Arabia. And in terms of natural gas, Russia is more 
of Saudi Arabia than Saudi Arabia is. Because Russia uh, is responsible for 40% of the global natural gas export. Almost half of the natural gas used by, you know, the world comes from Russia. And, and people, the, the plan in the West is basically to say, well, you know, uh, if half of the natural gas just disappears, like, is anyone even going to notice? You know, and, and nobody has sort of fought this through at all. But, but the problems don't even end there, because in terms of, you know, being the Saudi Arabia of a natural commodity, which is really important, like, you know, Russia is the Saudi Arabia of oil, natural gas, but like the list doesn't end there, because... They're the biggest exporter of wheat in the world. They're the biggest, or one of the biggest exporters of, you know, potash and stuff like that, which you need for fertilizers. And without fertilizers, uh, the planet can sustain maybe 3 billion people, given sort of the degradation of the soil and so on that we've been uh, experiencing problems with. Like, we have more than 3 million people in the world, and uh, those people are going to have to starve to death if we stop using fertilizers. Like, that's just a fact. This is one of those situations where what we're doing, you, you, you could just call it straight-up evil. From, from the perspective of America, which is driving all this, well, the, you know, the biggest potash exporter is Canada, so... You know, we're we're probably we're we're we'll probably have keep having access to that. We, we're we're an energy exporter. We actually export wheat. You know, none of these things that are going to vanish. Like they they'll definitely they'll definitely hurt us in the wallet. Like people in America aren't going to starve to death or freeze to death in the wintertime. But people in other in, in other parts of the world absolutely could. And and at this at this rate, I mean, in the third world. Can't we? We could probably agree that people are going to die over this oh, yeah. now, no matter what we do. Even if we stop tomorrow, it's probably going to have a, a pretty, a pretty decent body count. Oh yeah, but but I have to sort of disagree with you a little bit here, Marek, because I mean, in theory, yes, if you have a country like the U.S. that exports energy and exports, you know, food, like nobody should starve, but. In reality, starvation is not an issue of um, a lack of calories in absolute terms. I mean, that can happen. Uh, like, if there's, no, if there's no summer because, you know, a catastrophic volcano eruption or whatever, so, like, you know, there's no planting season, then, yeah, there's not going to be enough calories to go around. But, like, you know, the Irish potato famine, Ireland was still an exporter of... You know, beef, I think even wheat, stuff like that. The reason that, you know, half the island starved to death was because potatoes was the food you gave to the Irish serfs because it um, occupied as little land as possible so that um, you could use all of the good land to sort of raise cattle and so on to export to Britain. And during that famine, people in, you know, the British Parliament were sort of saying, well, you know, the Irish are sort of starving to death. Maybe we should let them eat some of the beef that they're forced to produce for us. And people were saying, no, that's silly. Like, can't give the Irish people beef. That's not our problem. Like, you know, the beef belongs to us. So 
if we're to sort of discern whether um, Americans are at risk of starvation, we really have to ask some questions about like the character of the American elite. Well, uh, yeah. And like, no, there's no, nothing's outside the realm of possibility. However, the, the thing is, is, is the price of wheat goes up and corn goes up. It's gonna, it's gonna price people in these third world countries out of the market. Yeah, I- if we had, if we, if the amount of wheat in the United States was equal to the amount of uh, uh, hungry belly in America, but uh, wheat was still exportable, people would go hungry. Right, yeah, but yeah. The, but the thing is. You, it, we would have to have a, a a very massive change in the wealth people of the United States yeah, for it, it to happen. Right. I mean, but e- either way, the the mid game uh, uh, version of that is like you're paying way more money for it and shit. It was yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah. We we're going to, and it is going to. Like I, I was just telling you guys today, uh, last two days, gas where I live has gone up twenty cents. It's gone. It's yeah. gone up uh, from like three thirty to. Four dollars in the, over the course of five days. I mean, that's it, it, that, that we're not we're not even at the point where we have to worry about the the, the wheat supply yet. That's like that's going to be delayed uh, because of how the cycle works a year or more. So God, you know, God knows what we're going to pay for grocery bills. I think I, I think I saw the was it the Washington Post? There was an op-ed somewhere that was so people. Uh, I heard about people talking about it in real life. It was it was so, so drastic. They said, "Oh, you think people are mad now? Wait till they're paying a thousand dollars a month in yeah. grocery bills." Look, regarding the sort of food and starvation question, obviously, like America is not going to see you know all of these stick figure children with like vultures circling overhead, like scenes from Africa or whatever. But I do think that there's a very significant risk that you will have people basically dying of malnutrition um, because you know when there's a global lack of, of, of food and you have these global logistical networks uh, the way that food is allocated is not because of patriotism or whatever like maybe in Russia maybe because you know Putin needs his, his workers to actually build his monuments or whatever but like in the U.S., things are going to um, be allocated according to who can pay the most. And so you will have countries, even in the second and third world, where they scramble, you know, they invest everything the state has in, in subsidizing grain. And what this will do is that it will, you know, skyrocket prices because you will have to pay more in America than these people in Africa are willing to pay. And that level will probably be above what some Americans can afford if you add, like, everything else that's rising in price. Mm -hmm. Will those people be helped by the government or will the government say, you know, have a margarita, go to kickboxing class? Like, I think there's a serious (laughs) risk that these people would just say, like, I don't see what the problem is. Like, you know, just eat some cupcakes or whatever. Like if you can't afford bread, just go to Taco Bell and you know, or or whatever Wendy's and order a chicken sandwich without any bread. Yeah, they got a rat problem in New York. Yeah, <laughs> just eat some bread. <laughs> also, uh, it you know as as there's not enough to go around in the third world. That this is part of this cascading effects thing that all that increases the power that that the State Department can get by. Uh, uh, 
you know, dangling it to like third world dictators and stuff. Uh, cause like there are things that our elites want in like Kenya and shit and, and Nigerians. They're, and, they're, and you know what they're going to do. They're going to say, Hey, there's a, there's a famine in Senegal. We need to import uh, 10 million more Senegalese. I mean, we know how this, we know that's, this yeah, sorry, that, that's another thing. Like if we have open borders and, and there's a, 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 a massive collapse in the third world, well, yeah, you, you know, if if you work outdoors, you're fucked. Yeah, I mean, they, these people, they they don't really care. Like, all of the is- instruments in the cockpit are off. Like, they have nothing warning them that things are starting to fall apart. So they, they could definitely come up with something like that. Because, again, they're saying, look, why do you need natural gas? Like, what do you use it for? And people say, well, you kind of need natural gas to make fertilizers. And then people just say, well, m- the food I eat doesn't use fertilizers. Yeah, the oh, gas is a six dollars a gallon. Why don't you switch to electric cars? <laughs> yeah, we're we're, st- we're we're about to see the the um. I mean, uh, if the the dirtbag left people are already starting up the. Uh, uh, why are you guys? Why are you driving a, a truck anyways? You stupid chuds! You know you should be riding a train like us in New York. All this yeah. bullshit. Yeah, and so like. There's a deeper problem here, though, than, you know, uh, price go up, which is that in order to punish Putin, I guess, like, if there's a strategy to be found other than sort of pure, like, you know, baby rage, like, uh, Russia demand bad, let's do sanctions. Like, I think that is basically what's going on. Russian man bad. People don't think farther than that. But if there was a plan, which there's not, but if there was one, it would basically be, well, okay, we're going to isolate Russia from the global economy to the point where, like, they have to sort of apologize to the U.S. and realize that Russia is not a major power. And thus, like, you know, in terms of, like, Victoria too or something, like, the special actions that you get if you're a big country as opposed to a small one, like, only the U.S. should have all of those buttons. But... Russia has made a play to have those buttons for themselves. And, you know, after we isolate them, they're going to realize the, the error of their ways. But, like, this is a plan that literally cannot succeed because Russia stands as the most important sort of cornerstone of the global economy in terms of raw resources in a number of fields. And there are a lot of countries outside of the West that cannot afford to alienate Russia. And and frankly, they have no reason to. To illustrate just how desperate these measures are, the U.S. is courting Venezuela right now. You know, they're trying to get on President Maduro's good side here. So that Maduro will realize that he need Venezuela needs to help the U.S. in sanctioning Russia, isolating them from the world economy. Like, what the fuck? Like, how are these people in the White House administration just smoking crack all day? You know, the U.S. has spent the last you know decade or or more trying to uh, topple Maduro's government. And they've basically done, like, sure, hyperinflation in Venezuela is partly the, the uh, result of Venezuelan incompetence, but it's been helped along very, very adeptly by the U.S., which has had uh, 
its finger on the scale in trying to sort of ruin the the Venezuelan economy on the notion that once you know Venezuela is a basket case, they will switch out Maduro. Um, they've spent the last ten years fucking over Venezuela really hard. Even confiscating, I think, like, the country's, like, gold reserve or whatever, handing it out to Maduro's challenger, saying, like, well, you know, Maduro is a tyrant, so here, we, we're going to uh, um, confiscate Venezuelan state property and just give it to you because we think you should lead Venezuela. And one of the few countries that helped Venezuela out during this period was, you know, Russia and also China. And now the Biden administration is going to, you know... With their hat in their hand. Yeah, saying, you know, let's, let's let bygones be, be bygones be bygones. You guys should be friends of the United States, and you should sanction Russia. The D.C., the State Department, is going to Venezuela, uh, you know, uh, uh, looking like Oliver, like an Oliver Swift uh, uh, character. Yeah, uh, no, no, look, they're inviting them to partake in the free world, like everyone's friends now, like this is this is for democracy. But like if you're Nicolas Maduro, you, you are probably a bit miffed at the US for literally trying to kill you. Yeah, fuck these uh, people. You, you, uh, you terrorized us for, for... Yeah, and so like you're miffed at them trying to kill you, you're miffed at them, you know, starving people to death and so on and laughing about it. But also, let's say you were But but if you're if you're a good if you're a good deal man, you'll you'll use this to to uh get a better cut from the, the uh, Russians and Chinese. Yeah. But let's let's assume you were stupid enough to believe all the bullshit from Washington here, and you're like, oh well, you know, I really trust uh, a sleepy, creepy Joe. Like, I think that he's really a friend of the Venezuelan people, or whatever. Like, this is the dawn of a new day. In two years, someone like you know Ron DeSantis can come into the White House and realize that, well, we're helping out these communists. Like, this this is no good at all. And, you know, reintroduce sanctions. And then you are well and truly fucked. Because, you know, the American state is now so sclerotic that it's impossible for it to keep its promises. Yeah. Like, you, you, you can't trust it for, for longer than, you know, half a year or something. And but, the you, people but you that, know Russia and China, Russia will have Putin and China will have Xi. And, and yeah. you'll, your deals will be good. Yeah, these people, if you fuck them over, they will remember it for 40 years, at least. Uh, so, on the one hand, you have the country, United States, which has spent billions and millions of dollars, blood and treasure, trying to kill you and destroy your country, saying, let's make a deal. And then you have the people who actually help you out at, at some sort of cost to themselves as well while you were being fucked over and who will not turn on a dime and who will remember if you shiv them, shank them in the back. Like, even the most sort of magnum, even the Buddha himself, who turns the other sheik, like even Jesus Christ, would not agree to Washington's terms. Because, like, they're... they're like they are, they are not grounded in reality, and the same thing goes with you know uh, the turn to basically, and and this illustrates you know the uselessness of sanctions. 
Like the U.S. is also in in total desperation, trying to get the mullahs in Iran, the ayatollahs, to uh, pull the American chestnuts out of the fire. Because like if you try to embargo, um, even though the U.S. like is the biggest producer of oil in the world by far, it's also the biggest consumer, and it even imports oil from from various places. So. The, the effect of, of sanctioning uh, or banning the importation of, of energy from Russia would have some small effect on, on the U.S. And also global inflation is going to fuck over the U.S. So, like, you know, Iran needs to help the U.S. by cushioning the blow from trying to sanction Russia. And apparently, like, the deal on the table is, okay, you can keep funding our enemies in Iraq, you can keep funding, you know, Hezbollah or whatever. And, you know, if you get nukes, well, you know, that's just one of these things that happen. It's a fire sale. Yeah. Like, you can't even parrot this anymore. This is one of the problems with, I guess, if you want to be nice about it, you could say representative democracy, but if you want to be realistic, you could say Republican oligarchy, which is that from from moment to moment, you if you're a, a client state or you know a, a rival, you don't know what the oligarchs in power are going to have in store for you. Whereas if you're somewhere like Putin or Jinping, uh, or, or uh, Jinping you, if you have a pretty good idea what like the, what they want now, they're probably going to want in 20 years. Things can change, but it, that's not going to change that abruptly. You know, between uh, Trump and Biden, they're, they're foreign policy guys. They might all be part of the Uniparty, but they these different factions have very different desires. So, like, it, it would seem like to me it would be impossible for this kind of rapprochement with either Iran or Venezuela to work because, as Malcolm said, Tomorrow, Ron DeSantis could be president and could it could destroy it all. But also, uh, if if you're them, why would you not want to form a block with yeah. these two countries that you have? You know, their leadership is going to be stable, even if you think it's they're evil or bad. They're going to want the same thing down the line. You have a you probably have someone you can trade with. You, uh, you they're def they're definitely not going to just get a wild hair up their ass and invade you unless you're Taiwan. Well, yeah. I, I, I would throw some things. So, uh, I don't know what you were. T- so we stopped importing Iranian oil in like 1980, I think. Right. And, uh, we are, I don't know if, if what we are, is the state department trying to reopen that or are we already buying, uh, Iranian oil back? They supposedly there's a, a possible deal with Iran right this moment that, being negotiated that would open up Iranian. This is this is speculation. I haven't heard anybody say there's like a solid plan, but supposedly the administration's talking about getting their oil back on the market because of you know the insane oil prices. By the way, the thing I was just talking about, like there's you know there's a there's a great example of this in history. So from the start of the you know like the the Haitian the Haitian Revolution from from the very beginning, uh, we. Our government had a very um, schizophrenic relationship with Haiti. When the Federalists were in charge uh, under Adams, they recognized Haiti and all but wanted to, to ally with them as like a revolutionary republic. And then as soon as uh, the Democratic Republicans came in charge, we withdrew support. And I don't think we got, I don't think they even got recognition as a as a state until after the Civil War. Yeah. 
It's like the, these things. Like <laughs> there is precedence for this now. After the in like the post-war international community consensus, they kind of tamped tamped this down, and especially after the Cold War, everyone was sort of not everyone. Uh, a lot of people were on the same page, but as time has gone on and our <laughs> like unipolar advantage has gone away. You have all these people who are now coming back on the stage and they're feeling themselves and they want some kind of independence. Yeah. I, just, I don't see there's I don't see any way around that. Like that's going to happen. And in general, our reaction to to Russia over the Ukraine feels to me like it's us being in denial about this reality. Because even yeah. if we win, even if we destroy Russia, which is a possibility, we you know we could wreck their economy, cause revolutions set them back to where they were in the 90s but that's not going to change any any of this like any of the things i just talked about like we're going to still be in the same position we're going to have rivals we're not going to, our partners aren't going to trust us anymore yeah uh, it would have been it seems like to me it would have been much wiser to just kind of accept that this is the new normal as yeah. i like to say the problem with that is that the u.s really it, it's like you know who cares about the kingdom of serbia anyway <laughs> but the kingdom of Serbia is sort of the 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 bleeding edge of a like a whole host of internal contradictions, and so like nobody really cares about the kingdom of Serbia at the end of the day. But like the reason you have World War One is because of this alliance system that has grown up between a bunch of European uh, um, great powers. And there's like there's not enough room for everyone. Like like in Highlander, there can only be one. And so like the weakest people, the weakest powers have been have to be sort of destroyed, divided up, and so on. And and it's kind of the same. Like you know who who actually like if Taiwan was given over to to China peacefully, and you know they they promised and and stuck to the promise because they have no reason not to, uh, at least in the short term, of you know. Keep the microchip factories working. Like, for for you two, Marek and Bog Beef, like, you know, it's not like your everyday life would actually change. If China oh, got no, that Taiwan, know. we'd probably have uh, 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 NVIDIA 3080s right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you <laughs> might you might actually be able to afford a new gaming rig, but but like yeah, so so maybe the change would even be positive, but once you let the Serbs run roughshod over um, the Aust- the Austrians, like that sets an example which the empire cannot survive, and in this case, like you know the 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 goals people right now are just coping with all of these like you know putin is like hitler he's going to drive all the way to uh um paris or whatever and occupy it like no he's not because putin's goals or the russian state because like if you switch him out the russian state will not change but like their goals are fairly you know modest in a way like they really want um the old sphere of influence back, not the entire one, like all at once, because like that's too big of a mouthful to successfully swallow right now. But pick you know, up, they, pick up Belarus. Yeah, I mean, like let's start with Ukraine. Like this, this used to be part of Russia, and it, like, 
we should have influence there. We should not be letting the Americans turn it into like their own backyard or you know dumping ground for failed sons and so on. Um, and you know, China. You know, the Chinese have historically been leagues ahead of the rest of humanity in terms of civilizational advancement, the sophistication of the economy, and so on. Like you know, back when Europe was living in mud huts, um, and and just to take an example of this. Like the reason that um, the Spaniards went so far spelunking for gold and silver is because everyone wanted, you know, goods from China, which were ferried over by the Silk Road. But the problem was that the Chinese wanted literally nothing from Europe. Like there's nothing we could make that, you know, the Chinese couldn't make any better. So the yeah, only you guys thing in that South Asia want, want some uh, wool sweaters. Sorry, what? <laughs> Sorry, you guys, you guys in South Asia need any wool sweaters? Oh yeah, yeah. Like yeah, you, do you want some? I don't know, beaver fur or you know, cut amber stones or whatever. Like no, the Chinese didn't care. Um, the only thing that we could actually offer to them, until you know, came up with the uh, great idea of getting them all addicted to opium, which they then became know faithful customers of was you know specie which is hard metal currency so the uh the spanish empire was an empire built around mining silver in the new world so it could be fired back and then traded to the chinese for chinese luxury luxury goods so i point this out just because like the chinese have always considered like everyone else uneducated monkeys they have never really been interested in expansion like you know who have the chinese invaded the last two thousand years like yeah they've, <laughs> that's a good point they've basically gone over to korea and you know beat them up a couple of times for you know insubordination and you know northern vietnam and you know indochina and so on like you know the chinese sometimes drop by and say uh you people are not respectful enough, so uh, we're going to beat you up, and then we're going to leave. You got to respect faith. Yeah, and, and you know, they fight with the sort of uh, plain tribes people and so on just to keep them from invading China or whatever. But, like, the Chinese have never invaded Japan. They've never tried to, apart from, you know, back when the Mongols had invaded China and, you know, had sort of taken over that empire like the yuan d dynasty i think tried but, like and that doesn't God really said count no yeah so like the chinese people they don't really maybe they're gonna change the like maybe tigers do or or leopards do change their spots but i don't think so well like, they are doing a lot of um uh they're doing some imperialism but like they're just they they don't they don't have a lot of gusto with they would rather uh you know uh they don't appear to want to like rule say Nigeria or or yeah. or something they just want the stuff but you know they're starting to build some some cool jets and uh, uh I don't know maybe get some carriers going and stuff I don't know I mean, you can see like there's a little yeah. bit of interest but I don't know if they they'll have the desire yeah. to do that yeah I mean they want the stuff because they need the stuff but but then like you you talk to people in Sweden and they actually think that you know 
the People's Liberation Navy is going to show up with like amphibious landing ships in southern Sweden and just say, "Well, this is part of Greater China now." Well, like, I've got I've got a good uh, so he- here's a good uh, uh, way to uh, if I was going to negotiate the deal of to end this war, here's what I would do, and this would alleviate because uh, I follow I don't I mean maybe I'm wrong I follow a lot of Swedish uh, uh, guys chuds, and I say that uh, where I'm chud. So, you know, they're the same kind of thing. And uh, I feel a lot of them have uh, suspicions towards Russia. And I think in the same way American chuds do, there's a lot of stuff like that. The way you could really, the sweetest deal to end this war would be to give Russia Ukraine and let, and, uh, and, and have Russia cede Kaliningrad. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, <laughs> but we can't, we can't give Putin a win or whatever. But just to finish my earlier Sorry. point, like, um, um, the reason I bring up China's historical behavior and and you know the the expectation that what they've done and that have worked for them in you know the last three thousand years or more, it's probably going to continue a couple of hundred years more, at least, um, is because. Yeah, they want Taiwan back because this is rightful, you know, Chinese clay that they, you know, took during the Ming era. Um, and a bunch of fucking Americans shouldn't be uh, rolling around during a civil war and say, well, you know, this is part of our sphere of influence now. Not when it's, you know, right smack dab, not even in their backyard, but in their front yard. But like. So this is not necessarily like, okay, first we take Taiwan and then we're going to roll up into, you know, Kansas City or whatever, because it's just like one uh, singular path to global hegemony. Like, they're not really interested in that sort of thing. They're a revisionist power in the sense that they don't want America in their own backyard. But this is not... What, what if they? Well, America is in their backyard, though. So if they take Taiwan, I mean, if I was Chinese, I'd be like, well, you know, Okinawa was ours too, and and that's got an American base on it. I mean, Okinawa is an interesting case. They they were tributaries to to the Chinese emperor, uh, and so, but that that's going going back pretty far. Like let it, it's Okinawa is interesting, but we we it's kind of beside the point here. Let, what I'm what I'm just saying is that, like, Chinese demands are limited. Like, they're not limitless. Like, they have some sort of sphere that they want to carve out. That sphere is not, you know, northern Sweden or whatever. Like, it stops way before that. And so, in an ideal world, maybe, you know, we could all live together with, like, Ascension, accession to these sort of Russian and Chinese demands, but like if this happens, the U.S. will collapse. Like the U.S. is a cat that has climbed up a tree and can't climb down it. Like you can't really wind down an empire like this in a, you know, functional way. Um, and so, the U.S. is maximalist. It has to be like. Because, because again, the elephant in the room with all of these maximalist demands is that the U.S. has this massive trade deficit. The U.S. sends dollars to the rest of the world because dollars are in demand, not because of their inherent, inherent value, but because the, the global economic system is set up in such a way that if a Swede wants to buy, I don't know, a, a container of cameras or whatever from China, like 
you use dollars for that. Um, and so everyone wants them because like, this is the medium of ex- exchange in the international system. The moment this demand for dollars disappears, um, America is going to become a normal country in the sense that normal countries can't just you know, uh, print figures on paper and expect to say to you know, China or Russia or whatever, like, give us 10 million barrels of oil and we'll give you this paper with squiggly lines on it. They, they'll just go, you know, paper is nice if you, you know, got to wipe your ass or something. But that's all this paper is useful for. Also, um, American currency has like, uh, like one to two percent of it is, uh, uh, has like cocaine and, and, and uh, you know, heroin and stuff in trace quantities. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's very normal for like you know paper currency that like a lot of it has that stuff. Um, I think that goes in for Swedish currency as well. But like the point here is just that without this reserve currency um, privilege of the U.S., the only way that you get the barrels of oil, the cameras, you know, the Funko Pops, whatever, like. Gotta everything have my that you import. Um, the only way you do that is by manufacturing stuff that people, like real stuff that people in the rest of the world wants. The U.S. has no capacity to do this without like immense demand destruction at this point. Like you, you can't bridge this um, trade deficit by you know Josh Hawley's plan to reshore some industry maybe at some point. Like no, it's like. This is an intractable problem. Yeah. We don't make hardly... And by the way, like, uh, <clears throat> we, you can't even really discuss this anymore. Uh, I've talked about this before, and uh, uh, Lord Yarvin's talked about this, but um, uh, if you go to American University and you ask your professor if, if a country should... If, if this is a good idea to import uh, raw materials and export finished goods... Uh, they will tell you like, uh, well, we, that's not even up for discussion. That was, that's been, that was, that's debunked. That's a thing called a mercantilism. Yeah. Yeah. They say that's just like this, this idea that was debunked in the 18th century. Why would you believe that? That's crazy talk. Um, well, look, if you're talking to those people, what you, what you're going to hear from them is that like the debt is fake and, and none of this matters. But all that is underpinned by what, what Malcolm was saying about us being the reserve currency. It, it, I mean, it's kind of it, in the, in the, if we stayed on that system, it would kind of be true. You could say, well, you can run as much debt as you want because ultimately people got to use dollars, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you put that in peril, and at the same time, you're uh, printing massive amounts of money in deficit spending, then you you will run into problems like that. That you can't do both of those things. If if you want to rely on you know che- che- cheap debt and in petrodollars forever, yeah. then you need to really avoid what we're doing right now. You need to keep the system stable. Like you yeah, know, you, Ukraine. Sorry guys, uh, sucks to be you, but we we can't. We can't upset the apple cart. That's that is how you would expect the United States to behave. And I, I don't. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but like, I, I'm kind of surprised at how far we've gone with it when it yeah. comes to when it comes to Ukraine. Like, 
with Ukraine, it's like we're we're ready to throw away, we're ready to dump the baby right out with the bathwater. It's it, it, it's almost incomprehensible that the people who run our country are taking this kind of risk. Yeah, I think they, I, I think they reason on some basic level that okay, if we just back down, like this is a lie on with with you know, all of the females and so on. And here's a younger, you know, stronger lion. Like, if we don't manage to scare this guy away, uh, we're going to have to fight for real. And that's a fight there that if we lose, we're never going to have, you know, a pride again. Like, we're going to be thrown out there into, into the savannah and then starve. Like, we're done. So... You can't take a step back here. The problem, though, is that all of the methods that you've chosen here actually make that um, the, the day that the dollar stops being the reserve currency uh, a lot, like it's it's inching a lot closer, um, much faster than like if you if you did nothing. I think, um, and you know, once the dollar stops being a um, being the reserve currency of the world, once the U.S. no longer can run these trade deficits, the social and economic collapse of the U.S. is going to make the collapse of the Soviet Union look like fucking nothing by comparison. Yeah. and it, it, It's going to be much, much, much worse. Um, and there, there's no way around that. Like, it's nothing you can solve with, you know, grit and elbow grease and whatever. It's going to be a massive like decade long transition as like the old sort of unworkable stuff is destroyed and replaced with like simpler um economic systems that do work um like it's basically impossible to overstate just how much of a like um history defining event that will be and and just how shit it will be for Americans but you're sort of inviting that, that catastrophe in by, you know, all of this stuff against Russia is essentially going to force people to plan uh, to be put in the same position as Russia. Like China is going to plan to not take as much financial damage as Russia is taking right now. Uh, when China decides to confront the U.S. and and no one in China, literally no one, um, in you know, in any position of authority, thinks that a confrontation is not coming. Like I think the only relevant question is China is is it going to come really soon, or in the sort of like mid near to mid future, or or a bit farther than that. Like it's it's just a matter of timing. But to prepare themselves. What they're going to do is they're going to build some sort of alternate system for, you know, international payments and then divest themselves of American dollars. And, you know, like if the U.S. had picked a fight with North Korea here, like North Korea isn't going to do shit against the American giant. But Russia has 150 million people. And I think that if you look at not like their GDP in terms of dollars, but in terms of purchasing power, parity, like if you try to measure Russia's strength in that term. Um, Russia is about the same like level of, of you know economic strength as Germany. 
Germany is the most powerful country in Europe. Like it's it's not a lightweight. Like you don't get much bigger, um, even in its weakened form today, compared to you know the German Empire or whatever. Like Germany, that's a heavyweight, and so you have a country like that who sort of in is a natural like great power, and then you have China, which is the workshop of the world. Like, if you put those two guys in the same room and then force them together by alienating both of them, picking fights with both of them, they have more than enough heft to serve as the central node, with Russia being a sort of junior partner at this point. But, like, together, they can definitely create alternate institutions that will, like, make um, de-dollarization a reality. Smallest example, uh, right before we went on the air, it was reported TikTok is, um, I don't know if it's it's like <laughs> illegal in Russia or um, it's, it's uh, uh, you can't upload videos and basically they're getting, uh, you can't use TikTok in Russia anymore, which uh, I mean, that uh, I think this, we're this all. Is so, this is so funny, like, uh, like you know, Russia bans, has banned CNN, Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok. Uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these sanctions too, and on these companies that are boycotting Russia, they're not stuff that you need to survive. Like, like, yeah. like Visa, like that can cause a legitimate disruption. Like you can fuck up the credit market. That that's but like these other things, they're they seem like stuff that actually people in Russia who are the least likely to support Vladimir Putin care about. Yeah. You know, like you're kind, of, you're you're almost kind of putting the hurt to the people who would naturally be more amenable to your message to begin with. Yeah. This, this is, um, this is like a reversal of, uh, the way. So during the cold war, the idea was that you want to inject like American movies, music, uh, basically all the kind of like soft products, all the soft power stuff that, 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 that we're taking away. We, we were like trying to like, you know, get that over the fence because that makes people, uh, you know, it, it was like propaganda. By the way, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, they might need visa. Well, you know, Japan don't need visa. You know, in Japan, they use cash for everything. It works fine. Yeah. Uh, but 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 going to TikTok, so they took away TikTok. I'm like, I don't give a shit about TikTok. I think we're all too old to use TikTok. Uh, but it is like super popular for uh, Zoomers and stuff. You know, they bussing uh, for real. And but the thing is, like, uh, well, you know. How hard is that to be replaced? Well, they're just going to use that. The Chinese have a Dojin or whatever. They're just going to use that tomorrow. And, like, there won't be any difference. Yeah. Like, this is the problem here in that, first of all, like, the U.S. is still powerful, not because it has, like, a military that can, you know, kick everyone's ass. Like, that. those days are gone. Um, mm. And, and I, I, in, in, like, in terms of, you know, Obviously, Russia would not want to fight the U.S. in Ukraine, like the U.S. Army, because that would be incredibly costly. But I think that people who expect that um, the U.S. Army would just instantly win, like they're fucking kidding themselves. Like the U.S. could maybe win uh, at a sort of a pyrrhic victory. When was the last time American soldiers, American officers knew had experience with like how it was like to be under sustained artillery fire yeah uh, it it would be bad and and uh i don't know if people so you know 
uh, there's these sort of competitions for soldiers and stuff, especially like uh, ex-soldiers that they kind of use to uh, the the private military companies used to uh, uh, hire guys. And like, so, and the private military companies, they can get whatever soldiers they want because they pay so much. And it was becoming obvious, like in the past, uh, in the past 20 years that uh, it's clear that like the best soldiers are basically just from the countries that are in the, that see the most action. Uh, yeah. So the period that there was a period where they had these, these uh, dr- very, very intense drug wars in, one of the South American countries. And guess what? When they had all these, these, these competitions, uh, those soldiers would show up and they would kick everybody's ass. When I, when, when Israel was doing it, um, they, uh, was, was having lots and lots of action. Well, their soldiers were kicking a lot of ass because they had seen a lot of action. Yeah. There's, there's that, but there, the bigger thing is like, you know, my immediate impulse would be like, no way the United States would kick Russia's ass. But then the, the problem is that, Russia has spent a lot of money building like the most glorious SAM network like in world history. And you're like it would be very very hard to get jets overhead anywhere close to that. I mean they could shoot down jets like yeah. uh, leaving Heathrow. Yeah, I mean look like the last time that the US fought like an opponent that was in its own weight class for real was in World War 2. Like, if you were fighting the Germans in, in the Ardennes, like, the Germans would come up with tanks, and those tanks would be really good. They would not be, you know, fucking useless rust buckets. You would be fighting Panthers, you would be fighting uh, King Tigers in Shermans. That's not, like, you know, you're not exactly dominating those tanks with your Sherman. Like, you, 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 you have to work for, for your victories. And, you know, like, sure, the, the German Air Force at that point was just sort of, like, shambles. But, like, Germans had artillery, and they had um, really good officers. Like, most of them had been killed on the Eastern Front, but they still had, you know... Like, they were a serious opponent, even in a weakened state. But that was the last time. Yeah, Ra- like, you Rommel, know, Rommel gave an estimation... Of what, like, what he thought would be was was uh, out there outside of uh, after D Day, and like his like random estimation he came up with was like almost perfectly correct. Like he like he almost predict- he was like they're gonna have this many ships, they're gonna have this many men. Uh, like they had they had some good good damn officers. Yeah, but but like there's nobody in the American military who who has experience with like okay. We're going to fight a guy who's going to knock out our satellites or whatever. So we're going to be, you know, navigating with maps. And yeah, also, they all, they've all gone, gone to rely on GPS uh, in the past so many years. And, and everyone knows how to manipulate. You can spoof it or you can just fucking shoot the satellite. Man, yeah, and- th- th- this argument to me would have been, like, I, I, I would have found this art- argument more credible like a month ago, but like, I'm sorry. I, I think that the last two weeks have shown us that the Russian army in 2022 cannot project force the way the U S army could in 2003. I don't know, man. I mean, I don't know. Like, th- what do you mean? You yes. don't know. Well, what is, what do you mean? You don't know. Okay. So here, so you're talking about like, why, like, why didn't, uh, so I read this and this sounds pretty credible. So if the United States was doing this, the the first for the first forces that would have hit the ground would have been like the elite special forces, right? Okay. We, we 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 would agree on that. Sure. Like yeah. it'd be like hardcore mechanized infantry, navy seals, and ship. 
the the first forces that Russia sent were like untrained people. And I was reading about this and they said this is like this is like Russian strategy. This is like what they do. And the the point is that you send out like your most useless people the very beginning and they're just sort of probing to, to find where things are at. You saw they were all captured like without much trouble and that like and th- but that was what their whole point was, like to see where where things were at. Yeah, we're t- you're talking like deep battle doctrine versus shock and all, right? Yeah, yes. I mean, like, have oh, the Russians. Oh, but, oh, okay, but this is this is like the, you don't. Okay, you. That's not a strategy that you would want to employ if you could do the alternative. Like if you could, if you could do shock and all, you would rather do that. You would rather wrap up the war much quicker, uh, take fewer losses. Agree. Russia can't. Russia can't do that, and, and that's not. That's not like. A, really a knock on Russia because I don't know if any country in the world can I mean I don't we it's been 20 years you don't know if the US army could still do that like I I don't, I don't think that to me the last two weeks have shown that I mean first of all it's as clear as it could possibly be like Russia's Russia's going to win this war like prop all like crazy propaganda aside they've pretty much got Kiev they've got Kiev surrounded on three sides now they're enveloping the Ukrainian army in the east so that that's not a, a, like the point of contention, but like you know, the U.S. rolled through and captured Baghdad completely in three weeks. Yeah, but I don't but think like, it's gonna be like this. Yeah, here's the thing: a couple of things to keep in mind. Like I actually thought that uh, Ukraine would collapse fairly quickly because I was, you know, uh, incorrectly assuming that we were still talking about the 2014 Ukrainian army, which was just this fucking. Tin pots nation, you know, banana republic, like um, hot, massively corrupt uh, conscript waifus. army. Yeah, uh, not really. <laughs> like a massively corrupt conscript army where like nothing is maintained because people are stealing all the maintenance money and stuff like that. And that that was the Ukrainian army in 2014. But um, and and they got their asses kicked by you know random people in in the Donbass. Like, they sustained pretty appalling appalling losses fighting against militias in their civil war. But, you know, during these eight years, um, the Ukrainian army has seen a massive injection of, like, billions of dollars of aid. They've had uh, foreign instructors from NATO countries, and they've sort of done all of these reforms, you know, um, kicked out, like, the politically unreliable people and so on. Like... The Ukrainian army is probably like the most powerful land army with the exception of the French in Europe. Like the Fra- the French could probably give them a run for their money, but other than that, like there's no there's like no one that could stand up to the Ukrainian army even with like, you know, siphoning off half of the money they've been given to like Swiss bank accounts. So, like this is not a pushover. They, the Ukrainian army could, you know, destroy, like, the Swedish and Norwegian armies together, like, with one hand tied behind its back in a couple of hours or something like that. Like, it's it's an order of magnitude stronger than, like, anything the Nordic countries has. But in terms of just, like, I agree with you that sort of, like, the Russians... Like, they have their problems, sure, and, like, like they don't have as much money as the U.S., obviously, and they certainly don't have, like, global reach or whatever. I'm just making the point here that, like, America, in, in a sort of 
if we're just talking in an institutional sense, like in, in a sort of taxonomy of like human behavior, America is at the point where it has no ability to sort of look outside of itself. Like um, Russians, because they're poor and because like they know they're not in the catbird seat, Russians have to look at their enemies and say like, this is what our enemies are doing. Uh, we have to adapt to that. We have to predict what the Americans will do, like they'll bring all this air power and we're going to have to figure out a way to survive because otherwise we will be wrecked. Nobody in America does the same thing, but like nobody with any sort of power at least. Like if you do this, you will get drum out, drummed out of the army. Like you will never become a general if you think like this. So nobody in the US says, let's look at what the Chinese do and what the Russians are doing, and come up with counters for that. Like, this is not rewarded institutionally at all. Because what the US defense industry wants to build, because you can make a lot of money, that's what you build. Because that makes a lot of powerful people really happy. So, I'm not saying, you know, Putin, he would kick America's ass. I'm just saying that, like... There's a real asymmetry here, not in terms of how many tanks you have, but like in terms of the health of the human institutions. And so Americans can probably adapt and, you know, fight Russians for real and maybe even win after, you know, reforming all of these deeply corrupt um, institutions. But... And, and, you know, maybe, like, this can be done inside, like, the scope of an actual hot war. Like, maybe you can sort of get your asses kicked and realize that this is not working. Stalin but, did it. Yeah. But, like, that's a really dangerous thing for a fragile, like, ins unstable regime. Like, those things tend to sort of wreck your society. You don't do offense while you're doing that. Yeah, exactly. So... Again, like, just because, like, nobody in the American army even knows what it's like to, like, not have sort of artillery superiority, because, like, America's been fighting people who don't have any artillery at all. Like, literally none. Um, you know, this is not a great position to be in. So, and again, like, could America afford, Marek, to lose a war... Where it's like, okay, we killed 200,000 Russians, they killed 120,000 Americans. But, you know, whatever. Like, okay, we, we kind of won, but not by a big margin. But, like, you know, we, we sort of have to give away some things we wanted in the peace talks. So it's not like a total victory or whatever. It's like this sort of compromise. So like, yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Part of it is you got to have a stomach for it. And uh, I think it's pretty obvious that by the way that they pursued this war, um, like this isn't, this war does, uh, this, there's going to be an, a, a long occupation, or at least Russia's planning for that. Uh, and you need like, uh, you need like a real stomach for that, right? Because like that is very uncomfortable. And that's very, that's very, uh, uh, just being real, people are going to be more uncomfortable about that being near them and it being in Europe and not like some place in Africa they don't know about. You know what I mean? Uh, like, uh, that's the, the, basically these occupations, uh, the kind of deaths that happen are kind of like, they're like, like murder it's like it's like you get you know it's like being uh, murdered on the side of the road you know so you, some a civilian comes up randomly bombs you and stuff you're going to be you're going to be in for that 
And, you know, part of me thought, like, well, first off, my initial thought was like, well, Americans don't have the stomach for that at all. But then, you know, we've had that story of, like, just random citizens uh, arresting people for, for having Russian accents at the airport. Did you see this? No. Uh, what? Uh, you, 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 you did a big quote tweet with a, a, a post in this guy's picture. Someone, someone like detained was detaining random Russians. Uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. The uh, <laughs> in Canada there was uh, Omar Al Al Gabra, the uh, minister of transportation for whatever from some Canadian department, uh, which is really funny because he looks like a, he looks literally like a goblin. Uh, a charter aircraft that carried Russian foreign nationals has been held at the Yellowknife Airport. We will continue to hold Russia accountable for its invasion of Ukraine. Well, you know that that's like that's pretty fucked up. But you know, me saying that's pretty fucked up. Like, uh, you kind you got to have the stomach to do stuff like that. Uh, I'm not saying that was a good idea, but you yeah. know what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, I. Yeah, sorry. I, I think a good like model of thought here because like a lot of people tend to view war as like, you know, you know, you, I have a million tanks and like these NATO counters and whatever, and they have like this offensive power and so on and so on. And like, you know, they fight with, you know, your uh, NATO counters and, you know, I take 20% casualties, but do 10 points of damage. Like people have this sort of abstract, like gamified way of thinking about these things. And in, in that aspect of like, you know, if we're, if we have to compare, like, the on-paper strength of, of the American military, even, like, discounting that there's sort of a lot of stuff we don't know in terms of, like, the actual health of it. Like, in that dimension, like, I completely agree that um, the Americans are still second to none. Uh, but I'm reminded of a thing that, like, um, really annoyed a lot of players in, in, in one of the games, like really autistic games I play, like, you know, Aurora 4X, this space simulator without a uh, any graphics. Like, it's just like looking at a radar screen or whatever from the 80s. Um, in the transition from, from, from one version to another, the, the um, creator of that game added like a failure chance to sort of laser cannons, rail guns, and so on. So like every time you fire them, there was a 1% chance they would go offline, like due to, um, you know, mechanical breakdown. And you basically had to slap on a bunch of more systems on your ship to, like, for automated maintenance, and that annoyed people. But I bring this up because rather than thinking about, well, my laser cannon does 5% like more damage than yours, so I'm going to win because, you know, um, the F-22 is better than the flanker or whatever. What war actually does is that it puts immense pressure on human institutions. So you have all of these dice rolls where, like, okay, you have a chance to fail. And, you know, this is one thing that everything, like everyone, like every general basically realizes that war is a domain where shit just goes wrong. Like, no plan survives contact with uh, the enemy, as the saying goes. So... Every time you have a war, that's where a bunch of stuff you never expected is going to happen, and a lot of it will be bad, and test your ability to adapt to the fullest. Yeah, let me do, um, I want to do some, I want to do some World War II autism, and you're not allowed to stop me this time, Bob yeah. Beef. Like, uh, 
the, the, the classic example of this, and it's very near and dear to our hearts as Americans, Battle of Midway. At the Battle of Midway, Japanese carriers outnumbered American carriers uh, by numbers. Uh, the only thing that we really had an advantage was surprise. Uh, the Japanese planes at the time were better than our planes. Their pilots were more experienced. Their naval crews were more experienced. They had they had be- better ships. They had better pretty much everything. All that we had really on our our, our side was surprise. The, this, this battle that kind of decided the course of the Pacific War. You, you, you think about how like what was on the line here came down to <laughs> an American flight group went the wrong direction and yeah. got lost. And by pure hunch, one of the men in charge of the air of the of the flight group. Decided, well, I'm fucking. I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn right, and we might run out of fuel. We might not make it back to our carriers, but it's now or nothing. And just by pure chance, because he went the wrong direction first and turned and showed up at, at the exact right moment, all these planes came in and it hit the Japanese carriers at one time. Yeah, and within it was in a course of like five minutes. And they were refueling the planes on the deck at the time. They had it, it, the deck was covered with gas. It was even crazier because the dive bombers got lost and were delayed. They came in way after the torpedo bombers. The, we all got slaughtered. But the Japanese planes had to go low to, to take out the torpedo bombers. So they were out of position. They couldn't stop the dive bombers. And just like by a pure f- turn of fate, it, these people all converged at one time and just, just destroyed a huge chunk of the Japanese Navy, changed the course of the war. Now, you can say whatever you want about training or whatever, but A, it was fate. Be the men in this in this airplane, you know. So when you're talking about, oh, well, what are the statistics? You know, the the, the flight performance and the avionics, the F-22. Well, in the end, somebody has to sit in the cockpit. These things have to play out. Yeah. There is a degree. There, yeah, yeah, I know what you're gonna say. There's a degree of chance, whatever. Okay, uh, let me let me do something about that. <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, by the way, small thing. You talking about the dive bombers? Uh, there's been a lot of very good research lately on the the whole thing about the we made such a big deal about um uh what do you call it, the kamikaze guys yeah uh like that's like the biggest moral crime ever well you know the uh the torpedo bomber guys casualty rate was pretty much like a hundred percent for like the uh the first uh two or three years of the war like yeah. you were gonna die like if you were if you were an American dive bomber I mean uh, uh, sorry a torpedo bomber pilot because you're like your shit like you're not flying a super fast thing and it's carrying this super heavy thing and uh you know fighters are going to come in and you can't really do anything about it you're not going to dodge them and shit it's worse than that because you're flying low and you can't fly too fast because the tor- you can't drop the torpedo when you're going too fast so you had to be going low and slow in this in this f- flying target yeah, the, through the whole war, the the casualty rate for American uh, 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 torpedo bomber rate was fifty percent, which is like you know that's insane, like you, you, uh, compared to anything else. But like for the beginning of the war, like it was like a hundred percent. Okay. Uh, uh, by the way, this is one of the reasons why um, uh, the uh, the nuclear bombing was defensible. Uh, at the at the end of the war, what the the the, the Japanese figured out was that. The uh, so the very end of the war, like we have this thing done, we have this country surrounded, like we're ready to take it. Uh, the Navy's gone. Yes, there's like there's nothing there, and you know we're bombing and shit. Like what the Japanese figured out was that uh, if you made a, the 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 biplane, if you made a plane out of wood, it it wouldn't be picked up on radar, and if you so they're like they started doing 
what do you, the, 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 the suicide bomber, uh, the kamikaze flights at night with a wooden plane. And like the success rate was like a hundred percent. Like if you get, if you, if you, every time they did that, uh, they would, they would, they would kill these huge expensive American warships. So the American warships would have to at night before it got dark, they would sail away as far as they could because they had no way to stop it. They, you couldn't pick it up. Like it, it was just going to wipe you guys out. So that, that's, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, just to circle back to where we started, I think that's a, a really great example that you brought up, Marek, which, like, the Battle of Midway, like, it really came down to flukes, a series of flukes that that really sort of decided the way that the battle specifically, like, turned out. But, um, so, so in a way, like, a lot of stuff comes down to fate, but but the reason wars are still sort of won on paper a lot of the time is because the Japanese, like, they had to roll snake eyes once, and then they were fucked. The Americans yes. could roll snake eyes ten times in a row, and they would still, like, have a fighting chance. Um, and And so, like, people like to quote all of these like you know military statistics at you and so on to tell you like which country is going to win but in terms just of like let's say you have a battle of midway against china but the luck is on the side of the chinese so you know two carriers with like ten thousand hands just obliterated because you know some some officer or whatever like his cat jumped on like a console or whatever and the cat sort of <laughs> i don't know like uh, disrupted some like radar system or whatever so okay two carriers sunk ten thousand people dead in just pure like material terms this would ne- not necessarily be like the end of the world but just in terms of like the human like the resiliency of the human institutions at play in the u.s um I don't see how there's a lot of like you know slack at the moment. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this is uh sorry. A lot of people in modern war have gambled on that very concept, like of Japanese for one. That you know, that they these guys can't take a punch. It's impossible to know until you actually get yeah. in that position. However, you don't you don't want to be in that position, and especially like like you said that the. the the outlook today versus like if you'd asked me this question ten years ago, I'd have been like, "You're crazy." Uh, it would it, 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 it would fill us full of righteous anger, and we you know we we want to fight twice as hard. Today, I don't know. That's not a question you really want to have to answer either. Yeah, yeah, I I fully agree. I just think that what we can say with a fairly high degree of certainty today is that like there's nothing really that should give us. Um, or should make us think that the U.S. is playing in a league of its own. Like, if it yes. comes down to a test of resolve, like, Americans just have this huge advantage over the Chinese. Like, there's nothing left that would, like, sort of make us draw that conclusion. Like, yeah, sure, in a test of resolve, maybe the Americans will win. Like, maybe. But it's impossible to know. And there's really, like, there's all of these classic signs of weakness on both sides to some degree, but like the, the signs are obviously much more blatant and open, partly because the U.S. is not a closed society in the same way that China is. But like we can see um, the cracks in the foundation. And like, you know, if you have a 
when this has happened recently in the US, if you have a bridge that's going to fall apart at any second, where, you know, you have the engineers take a look at it and say, well, you know, all of these cracks, like, you, we haven't been doing maintenance, this is an unsafe bridge. Like, you as a person driving over that bridge, it's not at all guaranteed that it's going to fall apart just because you're driving a lorry over it. Like, it could not fall apart. It fall apart in a couple of days. Or, or maybe not. Like, it's... We can't really be certain about anything other than say that, like, these are the correct conditions for this stuff to happen. Yeah. Well, th- this is this is this is normal existence, by the way. Uh, th- this tw- like this twenty twenty five year stretch that America had, where like you had this mixture of technology that allowed projection of force anywhere on Earth, and you could you could make the argument, you know, if we're talking this year two thousand, you could say that uh, while America could not have like, invaded Russia or China and taken it over. Like, they could have, either one of those countries probably destroyed their military capacity. Yeah. Not, not easily, but could have done it. Like, you couldn't say that today, but that you're, that's just not, historically, that's not something that comes along very often, if ever. Like, even the Ro- like the Romans are kind of the, the, or the Mongols, they're like the top flight example of this kind of military power. And even they had nuts that they couldn't crack. Like, you just, yeah. as Americans... People have to just get over this idea that you can you're in charge of the entire planet because as time goes on, the lead is already eroded terribly, and if, if, you know eventually we're going to reach a point where there's going to be someone at parity with us militarily, and in, and then after that, someone superior to us with military, and just we just have to learn to deal with that. We and, and we can for the first eighty to hundred years of our country's existence, that was that was the state of the world. We were not the biggest dog on the block. And we got along just fine. Just, and I don't even say we because it's not like people like us are driving this. It's like the, the elites have to get this through their head be, before they squander all of our prosperity or our fucking lives, worst case scenario. And if you just take a step back and sort of look at, you know, all of these big events, and there have been a lot of them um, just the last like couple, let's say four years. Or let's go back even farther than that. Trump descending the escalator. <laughs> like, how many people at the time saw Trump descending the escalator and said, yeah, this is going to lead to a 10-year-long insane crisis for the United States politically, domestically? Like, I, I remember, like, Ann Coulter said, like, was on some show with Joanne Reed, and she said that, she was asked the question, like, who, who do you think is, like, the uh, Republican candidate most likely to win in this primary? And she said, like, of the announced candidates, Donald Trump. And everyone just felt completely silent. Like, they, they didn't even know how to respond because it was so ridiculous. Like, what? Yeah. This TV They laughed at her. Didn't she, yeah. she, she, there was silence, she repeated it. And then, and then she, they laughed at her. They, uh, yeah. st- they literally laughed at her, yeah. Yeah. So, like, all of these sort of big events that are just, like, turning points in, in, in recent history, none of them, like, you couldn't explain them to someone even a year beforehand and be expect to be taken seriously. 
Like it would be impossible. Like if you try try to tell someone a year ago, yeah, you know, you're gonna have all of these truckers in Canada, and they're gonna be really mad about like this new bat flu or whatever, and uh, there's gonna be a uh, state of emergency over it because people are honking too much. Yeah. <laughs> the, the this um the thing about resilience being uh, uh what wins is very important i've written an episode on this i'm not totally done with it but uh about because caesar was obsessed with this uh he really thought of, the way caesar basically describes war uh is like it's almost like uh whenever you have like real battle which was not very often this is one reason people are so obsessed like the battle of Agincourt and all this kind of stuff like why yeah. because you don't get a whole lot of that but and when you do, Caesar was. I mean, I'm gonna overstate and say Caesar almost basically says it's almost random. Now, it, it, you know, fortune steps in. Now, what happens before that and after that is not really random. Uh, another example would be like if you look at Napoleon, like Napoleon's win loss record, like early win loss record and late win loss record, uh, they're not wildly different. What's different is that when he when he does like quote unquote win in his early campaigns when he's got an awesome cavalry like he destroys the remaining enemy force and in the late late Napoleon he doesn't same thing with Caesar yeah. Caesar gets beat all the fucking time the difference is he gets away you know uh, and that that's sort of like the the resilience thing like can you how, how many L's can you take this is one of the reasons why. Like, industrialized warfare sucks because like you know this this i guess kind of this kind of uh, putting a damper on what i said before but unfortunately it's true it's like there are fewer and fewer of these moments in in, in wars industrial production unfortunately like uh, come out on top over fate or uh, martial mm. spirit you can't deny that like the, the last two world wars like that was the story well there. i mean i don't know i don't think as much anymore right uh so it, it, there's well, there's a well, lot of before, it let me, just, let me use the example that's like uh, let's say that midway went the entire different way like the navy's planes were shot down they sank all three aircraft carriers u.s air aircraft carriers the outcome of the war isn't going to change. Like yeah. Japan's still going to lose that fucking war. They might lose it ten years later instead of instead of uh, four years later. But it, it's or sorry, three years later, it's still going to happen. Like that's kind of the the thing about like about modern industrialized warfare. Now that could change on a dime. Like we won't know until the, until there's another big war. Although my my concern, and I shared this with you the other day Bob beef is that like we're looking at a 21st century version of the great war you have information propaganda you have economic sanctions you're essentially trying to create a blockade a virtual blockade around a country like maybe this is what warfare actually looks like in it between nuclear armed powers in which case that really sucks like it's it, it's all the bad parts of war with none of the like parts that people romanticize whether or not you think that it's good or bad prudentialist brought up that what we're doing trying to do to russia napoleon did this to um uh united kingdom yeah, but the problem is the people, the people in the continental system needed the trade with the with the UK more than the UK needed them, so it didn't really work. Like, I don't think that's the case for Rush. Well, I mean, I guess we don't know. I but mean, 
what people are saying about Russia is that like we here in the West, we don't have much industry anymore, but we do have consultants and uh, lawyers and doctors and stuff like that. And what do the Russians have? I mean, they have fertilizers, they have metals, they have oil, they have 40% of the world's gas exports. Somalia but, could starve if they don't get our uh, our diversity uh, advisors. Yeah, yeah and, and like I think this is kind of, first of all, I think there's a lot of countries that are sort of secretly hoping that, um, not that the America disappears, but that there's some sort of revision to like the unipolar moment. Because if you're, not just if you're like a a, a, a country like China or Russia, but even if you're a sort of independent nation with which is like mid-sized or whatever, like having more options of powers to play against each other is usually a good thing. Yeah. Well, if you're Germany, but, or if you if you're Ukraine, uh, what was this, what Kissinger said that to be it's dangerous to be an enemy of America, but to be our friend is fatal. Like, yeah. I mean, if you're you if you're if you're a country like that who's on the periphery, or you or Poland or whatever, maybe you would be better off with. <laughs> With the with the multipolar world, yeah, exactly, and and then so like there's no way for anyone to really stop buying the things that Russia does produce. Like that's that's just a fact, and also the fact that we've sort of exported industrial production to countries that are not part of the West, such as China, and that don't share our sort of neuroses and and goals means that you know like apple can say we're not never going to sell another iphone in in china but you know the people who actually know how to make iphones are chinese like they ultimately control whether things that are iphones or you know nearly identical to them end up in russia or not like the ceo of apple has much less control than you know the people actually doing the work at the factories and who own like the subcontractors and so on. So I don't think I don't think there's a way to really um, block Russia. And, and and we sort of talked about this a little bit earlier, but it's it's a point that's worth sort of uh, talking about about a bit more. Like Europe can't survive this attempt at a blockade against Russia for very long. Like. Our elites are so, you know, huffing their own farts at this point that they say stuff like, you know, the average American would be fine with $8 a gallon or $9 a gallon because this is the price we pay to defend freedom worldwide. Yeah. Well, you know, in terms of uh, that and collapse and stuff, uh, if people think it can't happen, I mean, well... It's happened a whole bunch of times. Uh, like the late eighteen, late nineteenth century was like one huge economic disaster. Uh, you had the uh, if any, the the Great Depression is collapsed by any definition. Uh, like the way people lived changed a lot. I I consider the nineteen seventy three. I consider that a collapse. I don't know if people think that's crazy. To me, that's a collapse. When you go from where you were at in 71 to where you're at in 73, that is a yeah. fucking economic collapse. And America, yeah. like, this, is, this isn't like, you know, uh, you know Sweden had a, a, a economic crisis in the 90s, right? It was like, uh, it was like nothing. 
the, the problem the problem with america is like the whole point of america at this point like uh so, you know, if 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 France has the economy go up, France goes down. Well, it's still kind of France. Well, America is like, what is America? Like, we we have like radically different ideas about how like uh about you know we have like a culture war. Like people like literally hate each other. It's like uh like Serbs and Croats thing here, and you know those kind of like those kind of like feelings about stuff like that. If you know, if you're in a union together and everyone's making money and things are happy, uh, those kind of problems they kind of go away. But if you don't, it, it can get really weird. Yeah, like the thing that's happening in Europe right now is basically this like huge sort of social psychosis, and in Sweden it's currently worse than it ever was during the refugee crisis. And during the refugee crisis, it became impossible to basically say anything like you had these pictures of guys that obviously were in their 40s claiming to be 16 years old and if you said well these people actually look like they're you know older than 16 um you were at the risk of getting fired you were shouted down for like like being a traitor or being a racist or whatever and yeah there, there, i remember like that we've had a couple times like this and like if you know, if you're a normal person, you have kind of like you have friends that are that are all over the political spectrum. These people become like uh, whenever they, they to really turn the screws on these kinds of things. Uh, any of the friends like that, like um, you kind of have to stay away from because they'll like. Uh, I mean, they get very intense about this kind of shit. Yeah, and so um, I, I've written some posts on you know boomer social media facebook saying that like okay people haven't been thinking these things through and you know the moment you do that like people sort of descend on you calling you a traitor and like i've had you know people telling me in confidence that you know i don't disagree with you but you're gonna get fired if you keep having these opinions like so you should watch out and, and you know i don't even care at this point because uh i'm not really writing that much for swedish newspapers anymore so like yeah, they're they're welcome to call America to tell them that you know this guy is a traitor to Sweden or whatever. But you get this stuff where it's like, well, this 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 isn't logical. This this doesn't work, and they're like, so you want people to die? Yeah, exactly. It's just like that. And you know, one one example, and and I actually was in a phone call with my mom, so I sort of I, I laid out the argument here. And, you know, she kind of sighed and said, like, yeah, it's it's just like 2015. And, you know, this is going to bite us in, in Sweden in the ass. Because to get an idea of, of what the mood is in Sweden right now. So you have Ukraine. Um, the Russians have been, though this is often denied. And if you point this out, you are also a Russian spy. But the Russians have been saying since the 90s that they don't like NATO expansion. And ever since um, George Bush said uh, Georgia and, and Ukraine are going to join NATO, uh, the Russians have been saying we will never allow this to happen. This is a red line. We will go to war to prevent it. And they've been saying it like the same fucking tune they've been singing the last 15 years. And then, you know, uh, they eventually do it. And everyone's like, oh, my God, this came like a bolt from the blue. Like, nobody could have predicted this. Um, we had uh, primarily Pat Paleocom, Pat Buchanan, but yeah. also uh, a Ron Paul, who, like, as soon as the invasion happened, they banned Ron Paul off Facebook. They gave yeah. him a 90-day. 90, 90 These two men have said, like, since the wall fell, they said, don't 
don't do this. Don't push them. Don't push them in a corner with NATO. This is exactly what will happen. And they, and you know, they, they called them a Nazi, and they did that. They did that like thirty fucking years ago. Yeah, and I mean, like the these now that I have some familiar familiarity with the American scene, even from a distance, I can say that like the conformity in the U.S. is like it's. It's baby stuff compared to like the total sort of psychosis in in Sweden. Because like in the US you still have these sort of, you know, America first candidates that like some of them have, have not gone to the other side and they are saying that like we should not be dragged into a war. Like you will not necessarily be uh, branded a like an actual traitor. Like okay, Bill Crystal will call you on, but but like you, you might even not lose your job for saying this like it's, well, that's well, not the case that situation Sweden. is not perfect we will talk about that afterward yeah but but just to give you an idea of how ridiculous things are here now um um so you know as i said earlier um the russians said ukraine is not going to be a member of nato we will go to war to prevent it and then they went to war and now everyone realizes that ukraine will never be a part of nato because the russians have uh, put up an armed veto, but nobody is going to call them on that. Like nobody's going to say, "Well, you know, we're going to send our armies to, you know, kick you out." So um, Ukraine is not going to join NATO. Like everyone fucking knows this. This is the reality. Some people even say it like openly sometimes. But Ukraine should keep fighting to the uh, until you know and. Putin levels the last city in Ukraine with like heavy artillery, reduces yeah, fight, the last. Fight a bloody insurgency with with civilians and shit. Yeah, and like you know, if Putin wants to um, reduce the entirety of Ukraine to rubble, so there's no like building standing, uh, he should. This is what should happen. Putin should go all the way. Uh, Ukrainians should be fighting him all the while. Uh, rather than admit, just say openly, okay, you know, we in the Ukraine, uh, we heard you, Russians, uh, we are not going to join NATO. Okay, you win on that. Even yeah, though that everyone knows that like this has already happened, uh, rather than say it openly, it's much better to level you know, cities on the yeah, point this, of a principle that's no longer being followed. Th this is the part that, like, if you're, you know, uh, you 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 can be too logical. You you have to accept that there's there's people that are just really fucking stupid or, or disconnected from their decisions, uh, from the consequence of their decisions. Like literally, like what you just said is like so. All these things that we just we talked about for the past hour and a half with the things like uh, gas being ten bucks and and you know uh, hunger becoming an issue and maybe more refugee crisis all this shit, all this shit or the loss of the the loss of basically Western hegemony is going to be pissed away uh, because we didn't want to guarantee uh, no nukes in, in, in Ukraine. Yeah, and, and you know, like, what people are saying more than just, well, we can't give Putin this win. Like, they're also saying that it's fine. It's actually great if all of the cities are leveled in Ukraine with heavy Russian artillery in this, like, fight to say that Ukraine can join NATO even though it can't. Like, it literally cannot join NATO because NATO will not allow them to join. Because, you know, 
We will really stick it to Putin. We will own Putin. He will be so scared when German and Swedish taxpayers have to pay to reconstruct the cities in Ukraine that Putin has destroyed. And you know what? He's going to, you know, open up these humanitarian corridors from Kiev and so on and tell all the civilians, feel free to leave your homes because in 24 hours we will level this entire city to the ground. But that's great because all of these people, they're going to be alive and they're not going to have anywhere to live. So they will go to Sweden and live as refugees and live on Swedish welfare. And, you know, when Putin sees this, when he sees that we in Sweden are taking it upon himself, upon ourselves rather, to pay the costs of this war that he is prosecuting and, and you know, help, help him or, you know, sorry, we're not helping it at all. We're really harming him because by telling everyone in Ukraine that, like, you have two choices. You can go to Sweden and you can live off welfare. We will pay you to do nothing over here. Or you can stay in the poorest country in Europe and, you know, grab a rusty Kalashnikov and try to, like, take out a Russian military policeman before you get shot. So you, you can either die in this shitty country or you can come here, no questions asked, and we will give you an apartment. But when Putin hears this, he's going to be so fucking scared. It's going to be like, you know, his power is going to be completely threatened because we are taking in all of the refugees he is creating. He doesn't have to pay one fucking ruble for any of this. Germans will do it. Swedes will do it. French will do it. Like this, Putin is quaking in his boots over this. This is what people actually believe. And then when you tell them, actually, if Swedes say, we will foot the bill for the war in Ukraine, Putin will just, like, he will fall off his chair, not because, you know, he's so scared of, you know, the imminent coup that's going to happen. Like, he will fall off his chair laughing because... Swedes have convinced themselves that by destroying their own economies to take care of rebuilding and absorbing all the refugees that otherwise Russia would have to pay for, like we are somehow sticking it to him. But again, if you point this out, that, you know, paying for Putin's adventures is not harming Putin, people call you, you know... A spy for Putin. It's really quite amazing how this works, how this social psychosis works. Yeah. And it's not going to last forever. People are going to realize that, you know, we we can't afford. Like, there's 44 million people. Like, if even half of them become refugees, that's a crisis way worse than Syria or Afghanistan. Yeah. uh, Little joke. Uh, uh, we promised that we would take, we would make anyone that came from Cuba uh, a citizen immediately. Yeah. So, um, uh, what's this? so Castro said, "Man, you know, running prisons really expensive. We yeah. got all these rapists and murderers in there. Let's just send them on a boat to Miami." <laughs> yeah. Holy <laughs> shit! Like Castro is seeding over, you know, yeah. how the w- the way that the U.S. owned him. Like it, like it's it's just it's just ridiculous. Like, people can't really, like, they are not ready to to grapple with this. And we're going to do this thing over again, like what happened in the refugee crisis, but it's going to be 10 times worse because the scale is 10 times worse. 
and everyone is going along like fucking lemmings throwing themselves off a cliff um because like you can't stop this social process once it's really begun remember like the days after they found that that body washed on shore there was the picture in in the mediterranean and like if you said anything wrong mm-hmm. those two or three days you were going to get nuked and people in your family stuff so i think you're saying like right now is one of those moments yeah and i, I think the question is are they trying to rush through i mean so someone's trying it do you think there's possibility that sweden or finland will join nato i mean in a way i'm less worried about like joining nato um nowadays than i was previously because i think that the way things are going some of them i mean so there, there's going to be meetings in the next week yeah. or so right yeah, I mean, Finns have, I, I don't really have any particular insight into sort of domestic politics in Finland. But I in Sweden, like the Social Democrats, like even with them being like corrupt and decadent, and I, I often say a lot of bad things about them, like they have this huge hesitancy, which they've inherited, like of joining NATO. So like they still have sort of... In like instincts in terms of like the these national interests of Sweden, uh, and I'll probably end up voting for them, even though I really don't want to. But like this, this is an important enough question to to vote for the Social Democrats being the least bad here. But the uh, right is just like sheer leading. Uh, you know, NATO is really great, and you know, like. Again, like people don't think for more than one fucking second about any of their assumptions here. But like I'm not super worried about NATO and like it risking Swedish security because even in the short term, I think that America will be such a basket case and Americans themselves will make it quite clear to everyone in Europe that the days of, you know, a king like Johnny Boy dying for Gotland, like these days are over and they're not coming back. Like if you expect um, a bunch of people from the American Midwest to bleed and die for some Swedish piece of clay that they can't place on a map while their own country is falling apart. Sorry, that's not going to fucking happen. Like, and, and people are sort of kidding themselves about like the, the willingness of American, you know, the actual people that stopped the American military, like that would kick in doors and get hit by Russian artillery fire. Uh, these people's willingness to die for the elite of, you know, other, you know, Western countries that actually have, you know, functioning healthcare and stuff like that. Um, so to give people some background. So in the past, uh, day or so, uh, uh, the Atlantic, so you know the usual horrible suspects spun this up. So the Atlantic Council sort of uh, uh, appears to be behind this to some account. So every major news source in the past day or it, like a day and a day and a half ago, uh, they were saying, "Oh, Finland and Sweden are going to join NATO. Finland and Sweden are going to join NATO." And then uh, so they're they they're going to have a meeting with. I know they've agreed to meet with the Finnish, uh, the lovely Finnish Prime Minister. Uh, the cat girl, uh, and and uh, <laughs> if you read American news, that they're super horny for this. They say it's gonna, it, 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 this is a wrap. It's gonna happen. And the Russians, 
and the only other news that came out about this a, on Twitter, one of the, the Russian one of the ministers basically made it a, a threat that said if if Sweden or or Finland join NATO, we will we, we will respond in some way. I don't I assume it'll be oil. That's what I would do. Yeah, I mean, I I think that like provoking the Russians in this is a stupid idea. If you do it for something that you don't get anything out of it, which is what a NATO membership in 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 essence is today, because again. An American security guarantee today is fucking worthless because, you know, the Russians aren't going to attack Sweden next week. And if they attack Sweden, even in 10 years, which they're not going to do either. But even if they did, like in 10 years, the U.S. is not going to be in any position of actually caring. And I don't say this because I think like, you know, the U.S. will be a radioactive wasteland or like people like a Stone Age civilization. Just that like... The U.S. has enough problems and like this sort of security competition in in Asia, if the U.S. still has the capability to sort of act as a sort of imperial power projecting force, it's going to do that in Asia. And it has no capacity anymore to do it like everywhere in the world at once. Like it has to pick one place and it's not going to pick fucking Gotland of all places because Gotland does not matter to America at all. But all these people, like, on the surface, so they haven't had to do anything yet. I think Sweden, uh, Finland gave them, like, 50 million bucks or something. But, um, like, on the surface, so uh, the Swedish PM Magdalena Anderson said, um, we we stand with, with Ukraine, we're going to help them, you know, didn't give any didn't give any specifics. And Russia said there's going to be massive consequences, there's going to be military consequences, but nobody's had to really do anything yet. So that none of this shit means anything yet. Yeah, and, and the thing here, what, what has happened also that's very interesting is that, you know, Germany has gone out and said that, well, well we're probably not going to close, close down our remaining nuclear plants. Maybe that's a bad idea. And also, by the way, we are thinking about sort of spending 3% of our GDP on military expenditures uh, and, you know, actually having a, like the biggest army in Europe again. It was they were the weirdest uh, military, like uh, the news reporting, they were, it was it was right. This is how you buy military hardware. They were like, I guess Germany's going to have F-35s now. Like, I don't, I don't know how this is going to Like, you just made a vote in the Senate, and, and now Germany's going to have F-35s? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, F-35s suck, so, so I kind of hope they buy them, because here's the thing. What people are saying now is that, oh, man, NATO is back. Like, Germany is rearming. Like, this will be just like the good old days of the straight off the World War II. Like, where NATO was really great and stuff. And, like, people, they are so goddamn stupid. And, you know, not living in the moment. Like, not grappling with the implications of the moment. Here's the thing about the good old days of NATO. When did they happen? After World War II. What happened during World War II? What role did Germany, a strong Germany, play during World War II? Yeah, well, they what, were, what the, role did Germany play during World War One? Hmm, you know the idea that you know a strong a Germany with an independent military, like a real military that could basically destroy most other countries in Europe. That this is like how it used to be during the good old days of you know strong NATO. Like that just shows you how like 
how far the brain worms have eaten themselves into the heads of people. Because again, the point of NATO was three things, according to legend. Uh, number one, keep the Americans in. And this means, you know, have the Americans stay and provide a security uh, umbrella to Europe and also to, uh, you know, make sure there wasn't a bunch of uh, brush fire wars and so on on the continent. So, so Americans with their superior military might had to stay inside Europe for, for, for the good of Europeans as well. That point has collapsed. Yeah, and by the way, you talk about the role of Germany. The role of, they they yeah. were they would declare war on France like every 40, 50 yeah. years for the yeah. past thousand years. Yeah, exactly. So again, like what people said about NATO, keep the Americans in, keep the Russians out. And this point is pretty self-explanatory. And, you know, it's kind of failed. That's kind of why we're doing this episode, because the keep the Russians out part is obviously not working perfectly right now. But the third part was equally important. And, you know, that part was keep the Germans down. Because unless there's an 800-ton gorilla sitting on the back of Germany making sure it can't cause any trouble, then Europe is going to go back to, you know, being this fun place where there's wars all the time between rivaling great powers. Holy shit. The eternal Teuton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did like you see pe- what Lindy Man, Lindy Man made a tweet? Like, as soon as this started, he said... Uh, it's time to unchain the the Han, you know. Uh. Yeah, this is no like this. Like people are saying that, and they they seriously mean that in Sweden. Like, wouldn't it be so great for the rest of Europe if Germany was as militarily <laughs> powerful as it was, you know, before something happened mysteriously that made Germany much less militarily powerful than a country of its size? should realistically be expected to be. Like, what that thing was, we can't really remember. It was something. Like, it happened during the 19th century. But wouldn't it be really great if it went back to how it was before that thing happened? And I say this very seriously. I think that in in terms of, like, what is really bad for a country like Sweden, obviously a super strong Russia is really quite bad. But... The only thing that would be worse than that is a super strong Germany. Because, you know, Russia, they already have their periphery of really, you know, uh, sort of, they have their own backyard. And, you know, the Russian backyard is, part of it is in Europe, but part of it is in Asia. So, like, they have their uh, attention split between different parts of the world. The German backyard would be in Northern Europe. And if you have only one superpower or great power in your that considers you part of your backyard, you know what other part of the world had this problem? Like no other, like there's only one great power, nobody to balance against, like you are totally at their mercy. South America worked like that. South America is not necessarily known for being super prosperous and stable then that's because the Americans are the only ones ruling the roost. Like, if you're going to have a strong Germany and you want to be something other than a fucking dump market for um, German manufactured goods, uh, you better hope there's a strong Russia 
that you can maybe avoid getting crushed by like playing these against each other. Because again, like empires don't act like they do because they're like ideology or whatever. Um, like ideology basically doesn't matter to geopolitics. I believe that very strongly. Like it can yes. maybe sort of change things at the very margins. But at the end of the day, natural national interests are what dominates. And and the only way that Germany is going to be able to relate to like its periphery is the way it relates already to its periphery in in the context of the EU, which is like if you ask the Greeks how nice it feels to be under the fucking German jackboot, they will tell you a couple of things. They will tell you about the Germans basically um, engineering a situation that deindustrialized Greece, deindustrialized Italy. And then you had German banks lending money to Greece and to Italy to keep buying German manufactured goods that were, you know, now crushing like the domestic sort of industry. But it's fine. Like you don't have any industry anymore. You can borrow money from German Deutsche Bank and you can still buy stuff from Germany. Oh, what's that? You can't repay your loans. Well, I guess we have to move into your country and sort of uh, take control of your airports and your harbors now because you didn't pay your debts. Like, this is what's going to happen. Like, I believe this very firmly. And I don't say this because I dislike Germans, like, personally or dislike German culture or German food or whatever. But people are just not, they're not processing what it means to go back to Europe like it once was. Oh, I just think I just pieced together what you're saying. So instead of Daddy America that's far away and yeah. kind of incompetent, it'll be Daddy Germany. Yeah. Ooh. Daddy Germany is a nightmare for Europeans who spend more than five seconds thinking about like how European history the last 200 years have looked. Like yeah. having that in Germany, especially if you have your own manufacturing industry and so on, like that's not a really great, that's not a great place to be. It's 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 a really bad place to be. It's even worse than Daddy Russia because Daddy Russia is not necessarily far that much farther than Berlin. Like Moscow is not that much farther than Berlin as the crow flies. But in terms of what Russians consider like their backyard, it's farther away. Like Sweden is a neighbor to Russia's backyard, but Sweden is inside Germany's backyard. If I had a choice between living in a new world of, you know, independent European states and living in, you know, like the 70s forever, I would pick the 70s. Like no, no questions asked. Because being a client, there are worse things to be. You can be someone else's dinner. And that's worse than being, you know, a pet. Um, but like those days, they not, they're not coming back. America has no longer has the resources or the generosity or the time or the stability at home to be the pet owner of Sweden or any other country on this continent. Like... Uh, the U.S. can draft countries like Sweden to sort of uh, pay the costs 
of a uh, like really like sort of sundowning moment here in terms of you know the U.S. is going to dominate the world forever. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Like we're going to fight Putin to the last uh, last bullet or whatever. Here, pay for the refugees. But like they're not going to help us anymore because you know Americans they have their own problems. Yeah, uh, it's pretty rough. I mean, so, uh, to go back to one of the things you were talking about in terms of um, our friend Fredo talked about this in our last live stream. He was very blunt about it, and I was like, I didn't want to accept it right off the bat. But uh, he was right. And, um, you know, uh, this this conflict is uh, set back basically America first politics in America. Like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's, say, 10 years. But, I mean, there's going to be a big struggle that wasn't a struggle like, uh, you know, two weeks ago. So, uh, you know, it, people talk about, well, this guy's a neocon, this guy's not. Well, these people react, react to different incentives. And the incentives two weeks ago was that a lot of people, a lot of uh, Republican um, uh, politicians were basically populist. Yeah. And this war popped, and now all of a sudden, uh, now basically every, every Republican senator has reverted to full neocon. Yeah. The, I mean, th this is a huge problem for the American right. More than likely, this is the kind of thing that's like uh, we had a longer struggle ahead of us than than anyone had had assumed. Any, and this is just kind of a wake up call that, like, um, yeah, all these guys were saying populist shit, but there was way more work to do than it seemed like. Yeah, yeah, that's that's you know, I was at one point fairly hopeful about sort of institutional change inside, like you know. Um, the institutional right, not just in America, but maybe particularly in America, but also like in, 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 in Europe as well. But I think that what this stuff illustrates is that, you know, things can't go on like this for very long. And, and, and you know, this, this is not a problem of will, it's a problem of scale. Um, and just to give some, like a snapshot of that, um, Biden is thinking about releasing 30 million barrels of oil or whatever from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to cushion r rising gas prices in the U.S. And, you know, 30 million barrels of oil, that sounds like a lot, but it's two days. <laughs> yeah, like the U.S. goes through that, that amount of oil in two days. This is the oil that the U.S. would use to wage war in a cri like use in an absolute like national crisis. And it's being eaten through and it's not really doing anything. And, you know, oftentimes like political problems like this, it really is a problem of scale. Like the will is there, like the people want to reform. People want to do change things. But like their efforts are just like an order or several orders of magnitude like in the wrong sort of neighborhood in terms of size. They change things on the margins, but they have no idea how to do like, you know, like 95% of the puzzle. But but they can they can sort of lay the puzzle pieces in one particular corner and they're lost for the rest of the puzzle. Yeah, by the way, when when we were there was a point where the quote was we were swimming in oil from the uh, you know, and like during early COVID, uh, you know, there's not as much people using oil. It was down to $30 a barrel. Uh, Trump tried to, to 
just fill it up to the max. Just fill the strategic reserve to the max, but it was blocked. Yeah. History does not end when you have a society that can't go on without reform and that can't do reform. Like, this is just a description of France in the uh, 1780s. You know, this is, this is not that uncommon in history to have these situations. And what happens is that society breaks to the point where reform is literally forced through. And then you sort of start improving things, maybe after quite a lot of pain. But, like, things get really... They get worse, but they can't get worse forever. Which is also, like, one of the like ridiculous copes that people have where they say like, well, nothing is ever going to change. Everything is just going to get worse and worse and worse forever. People talking about like wanting a, like uh, wanting a Caesar. Well, you had an opportunity to get to, to get a Diocletian, you know, to, uh, yeah. he's the guy that, that, um, you know, things weren't going good and he reformed and he kind of patched things up and, and they got many, many more good years out of it. Uh, you know, when the thing about Caesar, uh, Caesar is born out of a lot of death. Caesars don't pop up in happy times. Yeah. Everyone kind of realizes that, like, we really have passed a historical inflection point. Like, this war... Like, sure, Ukraine doesn't really matter. I mean, it matters to Hunter Biden. uh, But I'm unsure that Ukraine even matters to the people that live there, to be honest. Like, it's, it's, it's like Serbia of our time. Like, you know, people could really survive regardless of what happens in Serbia or whatever like the black hand comes up with but like this is this is the big one in terms of like all of the pressures of our globalized economy like from from this point on there are going to be like you know temporary pauses but um the wheels are in motion now, and they're not going to stop until we end up in a fairly, very, like, radically different world than the one we um, live in right now. Like, there's yeah. no way to stop this process anymore. Yeah, the, the, there's a trend. And the way, like, the way this works, it's not like things like decline and stuff. They don't just, like, happen in a vacuum. What it means is, like, this is, like, you know where things are headed, and but the road to there will, will be, like, have, like, a movie story. will yeah. be this event and that event, and there was an embargo here, and, and this happened, and there was a weird election thing that happened, and, that, and these will be the stories that sort of make up uh, this if there's, no, if there's no changes. Yeah. I mean, we, we'll have a lot of opportunities to come back and, and talk about, like, the different sort of pit stops on this, on this road to damnation. Okay, well, I've got one. Uh, uh, we'll finish up on this question, because um, this came up lately. Uh, and it's kind of in the middle of all those things you were talking about in terms of European politics. I don't know much about European politics. How did Europe just let the Turks take Cyprus in the 70s? You know, I, I really don't know. I'm not... I have like very little knowledge of how that played out, so I, I, I actually can't answer that question. Merrick, do you know like why like why did like did this? I, I don't get it. At the time, Greece was ruled by the junta, uh, and it was it was it was a moment ripe to make a move for Turkey because their their traditional opponents were in a bad situation politically. And uh, no one, like NATO, no one was going to stop them. Like, what was NATO going to st- start a war right at, right after Vietnam over Cyprus? 
Well, so if it had happened most any other time, then oh, they wouldn't oh. have done it. Well, not just that, but like, okay, what what are you going to do if you're if you're the West, if you're NATO, Western powers, whatever? You're going to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna have a war with Turkey, who controls the Dardanelles, while the Soviet Union still exists. Uh, you know, the, the Turkey controls the entrance to the Black Sea. We're gonna we're gonna start a war with them over Cyprus, over half of Cyprus. Hell no! It's just you had to make trade offs back then because the Soviet Union still existed, and America had just gotten out of a very costly war politically. It was just it was the right time for Turkey to make a move, and they did it. Okay, it works for me. Uh, do you have anything to show? Nah, nah. Um, I'm good. Uh, Merrick, what do we have to show? We're we're on the grind set right now. We're going to talk to Bennett, uh, Bennett's Blackery tomorrow. We just we just posted an episode with the Prudentialist. Uh, you will then on Tuesday we'll be doing our live stream. So yep, yeah, we got a full dance card. Yep. So uh, we got more, 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 more coming. So we'll yeah. uh, see you tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. Making their way. The only way they know how Let's go